Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, state lawmakers in Indiana are in a special call legislative session. The Republican faction of Indiana's General Assembly, well, they might be pushing an all-out ban of abortion in in Indiana with some limited exceptions in case of rape and incest and when the life of the pregnant person is at risk. Indiana becomes the first state to hold a special legislative session for more restrictions on abortion bans since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last month. And I'll speak with Lauren Chapman from NPR member station WFYI in Annapolis. Also, it's called the Museum of Diversity, but it's not even built yet. An Atlanta-based nonprofit wants to celebrate the cultural heritage of Africa and its diaspora. And they're going to do it through virtual reality programming. We'll meet the couple behind the vision. Those conversations coming up. But first, we have to begin with this. Georgia Democratic U.S. Senator John Ossoff and fellow lawmakers, lawmakers heard testimony today regarding major problems inside Atlanta's federal prison. Now, Ossoff chairs the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. At the core of the probe, as Ossoff previously stated, alleged corruption, abuse and misconduct at the U.S. Penitentiary here in Atlanta. And Terry Whitehead was a former jail administrator at Atlanta's penitentiary. I was shocked. I was appalled by the conditions at Atlanta. Cell phones. In July 2021, approximately 700 cell phones were recovered in a sweep in Atlanta. Just, just quick, quickly, while we're on cell describe why that's such a problem in a prison. Inmates are not allowed to have cell phones in a prison. Inmates can actually call hits on anybody outside of the prison using a cell phone. Cell phones are not monitored. Inmates can make drug transactions, commit further crime utilizing a cell phone. So again, that's a big problem when you have 700 cell phones in a prison. That is but a huge go on. Problem. Cell phones are in other institutions. To put it in perspective, there may be one to one cell phone to 50 inmates at another institution. Atlanta had approximately 1,400 inmates and 700 phones were found. That's one to every other inmate. Again, Terry Whitehead, former jail administrator at Atlanta's penitentiary, and also we heard from ranking member Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin asking why cell phones in the prison would be problematic. Also testifying was Michael Carverhall, former director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, who was appointed director back in February of 2020 by then-Attorney General William Barr. Carverhall has resigned since then. In his exchange with Senator Ossoff, Carverhall was pressed on the history of the conditions inside Atlanta's penitentiary. For a facility in as dire straits as U.S. Penitentiary Atlanta, where the inmate population's been depopulated by somewhere around 50 percent 
as a result of extraordinary measures in the middle of 2021 after massive amounts of contraband and weapons were found, after years and years of documented failures, why would you not be aware of a letter from the chief judge on the Northern District of Georgia citing rats, roaches, emaciation of detainees, lack of access to hygiene products? You wouldn't be aware of that? No one brought that to your attention? Well, Senator, that's ex precisely why I was describing why, how our organization works. We have a regional director that is responsible for oversight of that facility along with the CEO. Uh, that is precisely why when I did become aware of the issues at Atlanta, I took the action that we took. That's precisely why we took that action, because when it did rise to my level, it rose to my level and we took immediate action. We did the things that we did, including reducing the population, reassigning the leadership team so that we could address the cultural issue that had developed there. And we'll have more in just a moment on that. In other news, Georgia's governor was the latest official to testify in the special grand jury looking into whether former President Donald Trump tried to overturn the state's 2020 presidential election results. Every week, it seems to be something new developing regarding this Fulton County investigation, including a major ruling disqualifying District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her office from questioning a state lawmaker. Well, WAB politics reporter and co-host of the Georgia Votes 2022 podcast, Raul Bali, joins me now with the latest. Raul, welcome. What's up, Rose? Listen, before we get into Fulton County's special grand jury investigation and all the drama surrounding that, you are today following that subcommittee hearing regarding Atlanta's U.S. Penitentiary. We played a few clips there. Raul, just how badly, in terms of based on testimony, how badly operated was this facility? You know, Rose, for, for those of us who've lived in Atlanta for a while, we, we've always heard the stories about the mm -hmm. problems at the federal prison uh, over in southeast Atlanta. Um, you know, you mentioned the hearing and heard some of the cuts. But, you know, there was one other cut from the former administrator, Terry uh, Whitehead, that, that really got my attention because it kind of focused on not only the prisoners, not only the workers, but but there are people at the federal prison who are waiting to go on trial. They've not been convicted. And mm -hmm. And also something, you know, it, it, the safety of people who live around the prison and around Southeast. So here's, there's one other cut, one other piece of audio from Terry Whitehead that really, really got my attention. On a daily basis, there were numerous policy violations which put the staff, inmates, and the local community in danger. For example, there were so many rats inside the facility dining hall and fruit preparation areas that staff intentionally left doors open so the many stray cats that hung around the prison could catch the rats. It is never a good idea to leave prison doors open. I, I, I don't know what to even make of that when, when, you, when you hear that, you know, and, and she went on. <laughs> I know. I mean, you just you hear something like that and you're like, that's like urban legend, but you're hearing that from the administrator. And, and with apologies. So let feral cats roam, allegedly roam and to take care of the rat infestation. But the idea that the door was open for people to go out the other way, too, you know, and, and the danger that puts the community into. And, and with apologies to some of the great mayors of Atlanta, she later said that, you know, the problem was that there's an Atlanta way at the federal prison of, 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 of staff not being held accountable, inmates not being held accountable. 
and that the prison was seemingly always falling apart because of maintenance and, and repairs. And Raul, I was watching some of that testimony earlier today, and they kept saying, referring to, well, this was the Atlanta way. That's not the Atlanta way that we're all familiar with in terms of <laughs> Maynard Jackson and his Atlanta way. But Raul, just what could possibly then be the outcome after all of this is heard? I, I The assumption, I mean, you did hear, as you mentioned, outgoing uh, director Carver Hall was, was, was pulled up in front of the committee. He said he's already made changes, that there's more money going into there, and that they're securing the facility more. That's really what it comes down to, frankly. It's going to have to be more money. Um, they, he did say that they're at 90% of staffing, so that's better than you hear from a lot of correctional mm -hmm. agencies. And you hear high turnover in, in, in corrections here on the state level. That's really it's going to be about. It's really going to be about about money and, and improving. And, you know, we talk about this with the VA, mm -hmm. it, it, the idea of improving the culture. Mm. And he also talked about that, look, this is part of a we're part of a very complex system here in terms of the U.S. prisons and, 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 and so forth. So you heard Senator Ossoff really pressing Carver Hall here. But he look, he's he's on his way out. He's gone. So there will be an interim replacement for the time being. Is that correct? I, I think the key point there is while he kept pointing out that they have 100 plus, I think it was 130 plus facilities, your Atlanta facility is just one of the most troubled and mm -hmm. it has been. I mean, it has a higher suicide rate. So, yeah, the, the new person who's coming in is really going to have to to focus on making those changes. Wow. Wow. We'll stay tuned. Uh, Raul, Monday was a very busy day for issues connected to the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, looking into efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. As I mentioned earlier, come into this segment, it seems every day, definitely every week, there is some new development. Let's start with the latest Fulton District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her entire office disqualified from even asking questions to state lawmaker Burt Jones. Take our listeners through what this is all about. So the... The Fulton County Judge, Robert McBurney, who is overseeing the special grand jury that's looking at efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential results, he basically said, look, this looks bad. And what he's referring to is Fonnie Willis did a fundraiser a week before the runoff election in June mm -hmm. for Charlie Bailey. Charlie Bailey is now the Democratic nominee for, for Lieutenant Governor of Georgia. One of the people she's investigating is Burt Jones, the Republican nominee for mm -hmm. Lieutenant Governor. And, and, and what Judge McBurney during his hearing last week said was, I don't know if it, if it is an actual conflict, but it looks really, really bad. And in the end, that's what he said in, in, in his state, in, in his, his order yesterday is mm -hmm. just look, this, this just looks bad. That's it to just the lay person who goes, this person did a fundraiser for the opponent of someone she's investigating. It, it just, it looks wrong. And so in the end, he d disqualified her from anything doing with Burt Jones. Now, the grand jury can still ask questions about Burt Jones. It just can't subpoena him or bring mm -hmm. him in. And then any decision is going to have to be made by a different prosecutor on Burt Jones. The other 11 electors, there were 16 electors, mm -hmm. one of them Burt Jones. The other 11 will still have to testify. The, the judge let, the, let those subpoenas go through. They still have to testify. I also want to mention one very interesting thing with this. A year ago, if this happened, 
Attorney General Chris Carr would have had to find someone else to um, take on this case on behalf of Fonnie Willis, kind of like they did with the Ahmaud Arbery mm -hmm. case. The law changed. They, the, the Georgia legislature changed the law, and the law changed July 1st. It is now in the hands of the executive director of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia. That's uh, Pete Scandalakis. Mm -hmm. Interesting that this, hand, this decision is now out of Chris Carr's hands. Well, there was a movement to get Fonnie Willis just removed. or to have, make, They wanted to actually try to get her to recuse herself from all of this. Exactly. They, but that law, it, go ahead. Yeah, in, in the end, the uh, other 11 who asked to be disqualified, the other 11 electors, and these were the alternate electors uh, back in December of 2020 that were, you know, kind of the attempt, if, kind of the attempt to replace Joe Biden mm -hmm. with Donald Trump in the Electoral College. 11 others were trying to get her disqualified. That did not go through. And then yesterday, Governor Kemp, Brian Kemp, Georgia's governor, was he was scheduled to testify Monday. He did testify, correct? We believe so. The This is one of those where the governor's office has been very quiet. He was scheduled to testify. Uh, it was a very basic statement saying, uh, you know, out of respect for the process, we're not going to make any further comment. Really nothing even on background. So we understand he was scheduled to testify. I mean, I have no reason to believe he didn't testify, but I have no information that he did. Just to let people know, he wasn't scheduled to testify in person in front of the jury. It was a it was what was called a sworn recorded statement mm -hmm. that was agreed to by both sides. And then also there's some news related to Jody Heiss as well. Exactly. Again, yesterday was such a crazy, crazy, crazy busy day. Uh, Congressman Jody Heiss, who well, part of the focus on him was he met with Donald Trump in the White House in the days after the 2020 election, uh, possibly looking at these options to, to overturn Georgia's presidential election results. Jody Heiss, uh, the congressman, said, look, as a member of Congress, you can't make me testify in front of that grand jury. Uh, it's the that same thing that Lindsey Graham was saying as well. Exactly. This is the exact same argument as Lindsey Graham. It, it got in the end got rejected. Wow. Uh, Raul, is it possible that all this will be wrapped up by Election Day in November? I don't think so. Um, and the reason I say this is because of last week's hearing with, with Judge McBurney. Again, the, the, the Fulton County judge who's overseeing the special grand jury. At the very end of that hearing, and this was the hearing in, about Burt Jones, at the very end of the hearing, he mentioned that he had talked to the special grand jury and that I think the words he used were, uh, they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel um, and getting it done by Election Day. Because Bert Jones's people were saying, well, if you don't disqualify Fonnie Willis, which they end up doing, uh, can you at least seal any report until after Election Day? Hmm. Uh, he was looking at that like, I don't think this is really going to be an issue because I don't think they're going to be done uh, by Election Day. And even if they are we would probably have to figure out a way to be fair about this and maybe even delay it till after the election. So just listening to the judge based on his conversations with the special grand jury, it does not sound like this is going to be done by election day. Mm. WABE politics reporter and co-host of the Georgia votes 2022 podcast. Raul Bali as always. We appreciate you taking the con taking the time. Good conversation. Great to talk to you, Rose.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Now, there's still a lot of clarity and guidance that's needed related to Georgia's new restrictive abortion ban, which is now in effect. Of course, it was HB 481, which bans most abortions once fetal cardiac activity is detected, which is usually about after six weeks and before many women know they're pregnant. Now, I asked Republican Representative Ed Sessler, who was the one who pushed HB 41 last week, if additional provisions would be enacted, including a full-out ban. This was his answer. Do you feel or do you have any Republican colleagues who feel the need that maybe y'all should start talking about legislation that would enact a full outright ban on abortion? Well, Rose, I would just tell you, you know, we, we are we are just so just there's such a sense of peace of finally having stopped 50 years of violence, uh, the violence of abortion. You know, the idea that in Georgia we could make such a, a powerful principled step, you know, following science, law, and common sense to get us to where we are today. I think the kind of things that the governor was talking about of putting in place structures uh, to come alongside women who find themselves in difficult circumstances is going to be our focus moving forward. And I think that's something we can all celebrate and, and really folks from all parts of the political spectrum should be able to get behind. And that was his answer. Meanwhile, state lawmakers in Indiana are in a special call legislative session. The Republican faction of Indiana General Assembly, well, they're pushing a ban of, of a full abortion in Indiana. That's what we keep hearing. Now, with limited exceptions in case of rape and incest and with the life of the pregnant person is at risk. But there are some lawmakers that want to go even further. Indiana becomes the first state to hold a special legislative session for more restrictions on an abortion ban ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Well, joining me now is Lauren Chapman from NPR member station WFYI in Indianapolis, my old stumping ground. Lauren is part of the news team statewide collaboration covering politics and a lot more. Lauren Chapman, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I want to begin here because there are a lot of similarities between Indiana and Georgia as it relates to reproductive health care challenges. Reports reveal that Georgia and Indiana are among the top three states with a high maternal mortality rate. And I want to begin there because I want you to tell our listeners down here in Atlanta and Georgia, what are those main issues in Indiana as it relates to maternal mortality? Yeah, I mean, there are uh, <laughs> maternal mortality in the state of Indiana is a complicated issue, and especially infant mortality is also a very complicated issue. Um you know, in uh, in uh, especially for infant mortality, um, you know, Indiana uh, lags behind with preventative medical care received and vaccinations. And less than four percent of Indiana families in poverty get TANF or welfare benefits, mm-hmm. um, which is four hundred percent worse than the national average. Um, and Indiana's maternal mortality rate is. Um, um, 
nearly 44 women um, uh, per 100,000 who are giving birth uh, die as uh, a result of of that pregnancy. Um, there are 33 counties which, because of um, uh, rural health care uh, limitations, mm -hmm. that's about 27% of Indiana's population um, live in uh, OBGYN or hospital deserts. Mm -hmm. So there's a problem of just general access to health care for uh, pregnant Hoosiers. There is a general uh, lack of uh, access to financial supports for pregnant Hoosiers. And um, it's a complicated mix of, of issues. Uh, Indiana in, in 2019 actually uh, started an initiative called the My Healthy Baby Initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, it was originally called OB Navigators, um, which basically connected the Department of Child Services, um, the Family uh, Social Services Administration, and the State Department of Health to basically make it easier to use wraparound programs to assist people who are pregnant or trying to become pregnant. Um, and, and uh, there were some gains that were made by that, but as a result of the pandemic, um, the main metrics and indicators that the state was looking at, which is predominantly infant mortality and maternal mortality and uh, prenatal health care, all of that has slipped backwards, making mm -hmm. Indiana again in the top three worst uh, states in the country. Yeah, it's uh, Louisiana, I believe Georgia, and then Indiana, we're, yeah. we're all in the top three, which is, is not a good thing. Lauren, I want to go back to a moment because you mentioned in the rural communities and obviously here in Georgia, we definitely identify with that. Again, for your counties in Indiana, that percentage of counties that are, as you all put it, are, are in a OBGYN desert, so to speak. Mm -hmm. No access. Uh, 27%. Uh, nearly a third of Hoosiers just, just don't have access to to healthcare, uh, one of the things that the state did a couple of years ago uh, was uh, the the state uh, farm bureau tried to make it a little bit easier to access uh, healthcare if you were, you know, along the borders of another state. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, that is still a huge, huge barrier to access for a lot of rural Hoosiers. Let me ask you: this. You all have expanded Medicaid at all in for? Yes. Okay. Because in Georgia, we have not fully expanded. There has been some movement in terms of for women who, who, are, uh, who are pregnant. But in Indiana, what is the scope of your expansion there? Um, oof, that's a good question. Um, there, uh, Indiana was actually part of the initial round of uh, Medicare ex or Medicaid expansion, um, uh, a, a surprisingly progressive turn from uh, then-Governor Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. And let's back up also because, as folks may know, Indiana has been in the headlines uh, regarding there was a, a case where the, a rape, a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio across the state lines came to Indiana for the abortion procedure, correct? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Caitlin Bernard uh, for uh, IU Health uh, was uh, the physician who was able to provide that care for that 10-year-old child. And she has since, I believe, actually filed uh, some legal challenges, I believe, to the Ohio governor or the Ohio AG. Am I correct? Uh, no, that's the Indiana. Indiana AG. General. OK. Yeah. The uh, the Indiana attorney general was on Fox News making several claims about Dr. Bernard. Um, and uh, Indiana has a handful of uh, reporting requirements for abortion providers, uh, especially in cases of rape and incest, you know, making sure that the state is aware of of that. Um, 
And uh, Attorney General Todd Rokita made several claims that uh, Dr. Bernard uh, wasn't doing that, uh, that uh, she had had a history of that being an issue. Um, and uh, it escalated to the point where Dr. Bernard was receiving death threats, was mm -hmm. uh, you know receiving threats to her family. Um, and so she has uh, filed a cease and desist uh, or um, has filed a brief to file a mm -hmm. cease and desist uh, uh, against the uh, Indiana Attorney General. And Lauren, yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris was in your state as the a special call legislative session is, gets underway. For our listeners not familiar with that, this is regarding Senate Bill 1, correct? Yes, uh, kind of. So um, Indiana special session um, was originally called uh, for July 6th. Uh, in order to uh, pass inflation relief for Hoosiers. Um, uh, everybody knows about the gas prices. Uh, that ended up getting pushed back as a result of the Dobbs decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so now uh, there are three pieces of legislation that the Senate and the House have uh, kind of their own versions of. This is an overly simplified version uh, explanation, but uh, the Senate has um, a bill to uh, pass some form of inflation relief for Hoosiers, has an, a total abortion ban with very, very, very limited exceptions, um, and also has a piece of legislation that would allow uh, additional funding to address some of the, uh, you know, strain that uh, the increase in births in the state of Indiana would mm -hmm. put on uh, the Department of Child Services and other departments throughout the state. So what exactly is the law right now in your state? Uh, Indiana has a, well, so one of the uh, there were a handful of laws that had been previously stopped by injunction, mm -hmm. um, including one that put a total ban on dilation and evacuation abortions, which are a form of uh, the most common second uh, trimester abortion. Uh, it's also a surgical option mm -hmm. and often the only option for women who have had etopic pregnancies or for folks who have ovarian cysts and other medical conditions. Um, that is now illegal in the state of Indiana as a result of the Dobbs decision and uh, briefs that our attorney general filed. Um, but as of right now, the law of the land in Indiana still states that you can access an abortion in Indiana, um, that hospitals are still able to provide surgical abortions in Indiana, et cetera, et cetera. So do you have any idea how many facilities and hospitals are right now are able to provide abortion services? There are um, not off the top of my head. Um, uh, a lot of the the uh, providers, uh, a lot of the hospitals are still able to do so. Mm -hmm. um, there are some high profile um, uh, specific care facilities in South Bend and uh, uh, um, uh, oh my goodness, can't remember uh, Evansville mm -hmm. uh, that no longer have uh, the ability to provide um, very specific abortions. But yeah. it's it's a long. What are you all hearing from Republicans in terms of now? They just want a full out ban, except for exceptions with rape and incest. But I was reading also there was one lawmaker that was pushing for that they should go even further and maybe with no exceptions. More than one lawmaker pushing for no exceptions. Yeah, uh, there is there's a lot of division among the Republican Party, um, uh, especially Republican lawmakers in state government in Indiana right now. Um, there are some that uh, one lawmaker uh, today as part of the Senate committee, because those committee hearings are happening right now. Um, one Republican lawmaker who I believe is the chairman for the Senate Health Committee mm -hmm. uh, said that hearing testimony made him physically sick 
um, and that he didn't even want to deal with any sort of abortion ban or limitation, that the laws that Indiana already had on the books were enough, and that listening to any side of the abortion debate just kind of made him want to throw his hands up and walk away. Um, the uh, Indiana House of Representatives appears to be a little bit more in line with one another, mm -hmm. um, but especially the Senate, there are some exceedingly wide gulfs where there are there's a contingency of lawmakers that would prefer that there would be no exceptions for um, the health of the pregnant person for rape and incest. Um, the attorney general, I believe, made a statement uh, about uh, not being able to prove whether or not a person had been raped unless there had been criminal charges filed. Mm -hmm. And so therefore that exception wouldn't be unenforceable uh, and should not be included in law as well. So where does Governor Eric Holcomb stand on this? You know, uh, he has said on a number of occasions that there is no red line for him. Um, I will also say that Governor Eric Holcomb has the uh, distinction of being uh, one of the only governors in Indiana history that has had as many vetoes overturned as uh, he has. So um, in short, I don't think it actually matters what Governor Eric Holcomb's mm -hmm. opinion is because the Indiana legislature will just come back and overturn his veto. As you know, it's been said that this now is the main issue come November. Uh, obviously, folks here in Georgia, Democrats say this is going to be the main issue. Imagine that's the same thing in Indiana as well, you're hearing? A little bit. Um, not nearly to... Not nearly to the amount that I, uh, I imagine uh, folks in Georgia are, are hearing. Mm -hmm. um, Indiana's uh, Democratic Party uh, has had picked up early in the uh, election process on the topic of um, uh, legalized or decriminalized marijuana products um, and has not made a significant shift over to abortion care um, in the last several weeks. So um, I, it's, it's a fascinating time to watch Democrats in Indiana do things. There does not seem to be, there is some push, um, from, you know, more liberal leaning organizations, but the, the Indiana state democratic party, while are, you know, very much on top of, uh, criticizing the, uh, Indiana Republicans have not really made their own plays for how electing Democrats in, uh, in the fall will translate to abortion access for Hoosiers. Here in Georgia, there's a lot of talk about what Georgia's even restrictive abortion ban will do on the state's foster care and Division of Family Services Department here, which we've had our own challenges and, and, and lawsuits and, and court decrees and all that. Uh, in Indiana, how would you assess Indiana's foster care system, adoption process, because everyone wants to correlate all that into this. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, one of the things, uh, you know, talking specifically about uh, adoption, um, Indiana lawmakers, part of that that extra funding uh, would increase uh, the uh, um, tax returns for uh, adoptees. So um, it would literally the jump would be $10,000 a year or $1,000 a year for um, adopting a child to $10,000 a year as a credit for parents of adopted children. Um, that is a huge push. Mm -hmm. Indiana already has an overwhelming number of kids in the foster system. Um, just a few years ago, Indiana went through, had a much beleaguered DCS. And while some of that has improved, 
Um, and that beleaguered DCS was predominantly because of Indiana's struggles with the opioid crisis mm -hmm. and a lot of kids being, you know, removed from families that struggled with substance uh, abuse disorder. Um, but that that system is not ready. Um, and even just going over like some of the maternal uh, mortality rates and infant mortality rates, um, black women in Indiana are 30% more likely to die um, than, uh, than before uh, an abortion ban. So it's just all across the board, Indiana is in no way, shape or form ready for an, a total abortion ban. Well, Lauren, as we wrap up, you and your team, you all cover this. If you had to, what do you think is going to happen coming out of this legislative session? It is. I. What are you hearing? Yeah, Indiana is absolutely going to pass a total abortion ban. What those exceptions look like um, is is really where that is up in the air. There is a very, 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 very small chance um, that the divisions between Republican lawmakers at this time are wide enough that they are unable to pass anything by the constitutionally mandated end to the special session, but that is extremely unlikely. Uh, and so Indiana will likely be the first state with the designation of a total abortion ban in the U.S. Lauren Chapman from NPR member station WFYI in Indianapolis, part of the, new te the news team statewide collaboration covering politics. Lauren, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting Thanks our listeners know what you all are covering in Indiana. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It is called the Museum of Diversity. It's, it's not built yet, technically, so to speak, but an Atlanta-based Atlanta nonprofit wants to celebrate the cultural heritage of Africa and its diaspora through virtual reality programming. Now, listeners, I know y'all very well. You're thinking, huh? What? What you talking about, Rose? Well, joining me now, the couple behind the mission and the vision Cuckoo and Troy Richards, founders of MOD. And I got to tell you, I, I did the virtual reality thing. What's it called? VR? Right, as, as Linux, my intern was like, it was your first VR experience. I'm like, okay, whatever. That was pretty cool. So we'll yeah. talk about that in just a moment. But welcome to the program. Thank you, Thank you very you much. So much. Thank you very much us. for having us. Um, I'm guessing maybe you all were having coffee or tea and someone said, hey, we should come up with a museum of diversity or maybe didn't happen like that. No, not really. Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> it happened through adversity, should I say. Yes, definitely. Uh, um, uh, yeah, so if I just introduce myself, my name is Troy Richards, born in Jamaica. I migrated to England when I was around 19. I lived there for 25 years and then um, gradually moved to the United States. And I met Cuckoo um, in London. Okay, perfect. Um, my intro is a little bit longer. Okay, it's all right. So um, for me, I mean, issues around... Racial, cultural identity have been something I've been grappling with since I was young. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm originally from Ethiopia, and my sister and I were adopted by a Caucasian family, grew up in small towns in New Hampshire and Vermont. Mm -hmm. So I never really saw anybody that looked like me, all mm -hmm. the way up through sixth grade, to be honest. So when it came to school, um, 
we didn't really learn much about black history at all. Mm -hmm. Civil rights was only about maybe Martin Luther King, <laughs> and that was about it, and certainly nothing about Africa, mm -hmm. except maybe in reference to poverty. Mm. Um, so from there, I joined the Army at 17 and went to Missouri for boot camp, <laughs> Texas my home for state. my training. Yeah. Exactly. You're at Fort Leonard Wood, were you? Yes. Oh, Fort I know about Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. <laughs> a whole nother segment. <laughs> right. So that was a culture shock for yeah. me, for sure. Um, I did went and did two tours in, in Iraq as a combat medic, drove a tank, which was pretty cool. <laughs> and then um, within and there, I was only one of three women in a unit of hundreds. Mm -hmm. And for at least half the time, I was the only person, a uh, black person in the unit. So again, issues of diversity mm. and women equality have always been really um, central to what I've experienced. Yeah. Troy, let me I, ask you this. What, what about you? What did you, yeah, so growing up, and what did they teach you about African history, black history, exactly. African-American history? Yeah, and, you know, so to, this actually, based on your question, segment right into answering your question. You know, I was brought up in Jamaica. I, I blew the trumpet um, as, a, as a boy in a Boy Scout. And um, I went and played for Marcus Garvey every year, August, to celebrate his birthday. I, kn I knew it was his birthday, and I knew he, he was a national hero. But what I didn't know is who Marcus Garvey was. I didn't know the you story. You played a of. trumpet like, hey, who's this guy I'm playing for? Yeah. And it's until I got to England and I realized, you know, the significance of Marcus Garvey, mm -hmm. what he was trying to do and so forth. So even being in Jamaica, and, and yes, they do teach a degree of the history. We do not know our history in depth as we should. And so, you know, to, to answer your question, Bo Cook and I was within the museum sector. We were telling the story of the first Englishman to circumnavigate the world. In central uh, London. In central London. Yes. And, um, you know, in 2014, you know, because we were one of a few black people within the, within the um, museum sector, mm -hmm. um, there were some racial comments made. And, um, and it started trying to push us out of the sector. And through that, um, you know, through that um, issue that took place back in 2014, right. we decided to form a museum, and we've been working on it since then. And and that museum is to look at, you know, we didn't have the name at the time, yeah. <laughs> Museum <Yeah>. of Diversity, <laughs> but eventually um, it came into play and, and addressed a lot of the issues we're dealing with today. So a listener right now says, okay, a museum of diversity. First of all, where do you start? How do you navigate? Are you working with someone? You all obviously have experience yeah. in that space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But where do you begin and what is, I guess, what do you hope the, the takeaways from someone that goes through this Museum of Diversity? Yeah. Okay. Well, when we were trying to come up with a name, we had a whole great team of volunteers who share our vision. And we, there's a lot of controversy, a lot of debate about what diversity means. means and yeah. it really depends on who the, who's, who's using the word. Mm. So... As a group, we decided that we wanted to define diversity not only from our organization's perspective, but also from our community's perspective. Mm -hmm. So we broke down diversity into duty, a duty to preserve the stories of the past to build a stronger foundation for the future, and inclusion, our vision for what we want to happen. And we broke down each point for what diversity means from the perspective of, of us, yep. as well as our community. Yep. What did you come up with? Yeah. What do we come up with? Yeah. Oh, that's what I mean. That's like, what we, that's what duty, inclusion, yeah. vision, equity, 
respect for oneself, but solidarity, identity, and youth. And are you looking, but are you looking for either moments in history or individuals or right. yes. that, it, that right. speak to all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, lit- really, um, the focus of what we said, you know, the, the foundation was we said, okay, life began in Africa. Most of the history that we learn starts uh, during the transatlantic Here come the emails, exactly. I want you to know. Yes. So Based we said, on what you, you know said, what? Life began, life in, began Africa. in Africa. Here come the emails. That's indisputable. <laughs> <laughs> and so we said, you know, African history is global history. Mm-hmm. So we should be, you know, at, if you go far back enough, we are all African. Mm. So that is something that we wanted to be able to say, okay, you know, during these times where there's so much division, really, there's so much more that unites us than divides us. So let's focus on that celebration and education and then ultimately unification of communities. So more of a museum, not an institute, but Mm -hmm. more of a museum. You all, I put on the virtual headset there Mm -hmm. and we, you took me through, there were a lot of paintings and mm-hmm. beautiful gra- yeah. graphics and images yes. tell if you can i wish our listeners could see that they can see it online but yeah. take me through that again the, is that sort of the beginning yeah so so our ultimate goal is to build a physical structure sure. um you're talking about something around 84 million um dollars um 100,000 square feet um and we thought i mean i learned virtual technology from around 15 years ago um through a professor in germany and through one uh, architect that I work with now, I said, could we use the physical, the design of the physical structure and bring this into the virtual world? And you know, we came up with the idea back in 2020. Mm-hmm. And so we capture exactly what we are imagining to build in, in a few years' time within that virtual environment. 84 million. Yes, mm-hmm. ma'am. How did you come up with that figure? Well, a lot of data. <laughs> yeah. We didn't pull that number yeah. out of the air. Yeah. I know you did. Tori yeah. is an accountant yeah. and auditor by trade, so his budget sheets are ridiculous. Very <laughs> is that, I take it, Atlanta is the place for this? Yeah, um, so we want Atlanta to be the hub um, for, for the building of the main museum, but ultimately we are looking at um, a, a Smithsonian concept, which is to build uh, like MOD museums. within, mm-hmm. you know, major cities and across the world. What else inside the Museum of Diversity? Often with museums, and we see this with the Atlanta History Center, yeah. the Center yes. of Human Rights, it's also a, a, a hub for education, yes. for bringing folks together around issues. Yes. Mm-hmm. Would that also be part of your yeah, museum? Yeah, if I just t- jump Go on ahead. that point, um, you know, perfect question. Uh, when we, in formulating the, the name itself and, mm-hmm. and our objectives, um, one of the main um, outcome that came back or feedback that came back was education. People need to be educated. The second thing was people need to be challenged mm-hmm. uh, and then representation within the sector, celebration, history and so forth. So we have looked at um, the areas where people, messages that people want to connect with, things that they want to do and use that as part of our objective in terms of creating our programs that we, we deliver. Is there anything like this anywhere in the world? So I, I think that there are a lot of great organizations doing small parts or telling small parts of the story. And that's what we have found over the years. We meet, you know, um, individuals who are doing great work, small organizations, bigger ones who are telling a part of the story. And we said, but they don't know that what each of them are doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to be a connector of that, to build that network. Have you been able to do that? We have. Yes. Um, it's been really exciting, actually. Um, 
So we've been keeping a low profile, <laughs> you know, trying to really do our due diligence. Well, I don't know if this is a low profile. <laughs> Not anymore. We're ready to tell the world. Y'all ran up on me at the Atlanta yeah. History Center like, hey, yeah. exactly. I got something I mean, to tell we're, you. We're ready now. We're, we're very excited. Yeah. Um, so we've broken down our programs into, well, really four initiatives. The first one is our schools and uh, university program. Mm -hmm. We have our community program. The Virtual Reality Museum is one of those four. And then the fourth one is the brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. So yes, everybody gets excited about the VR part, and that's really just a tool that we use to, to do folks, the storytelling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the school and university programs we've developed, the school one is um, a combination of leadership, mentorship, and entrepreneurship. Yeah. And then the university program yeah. that we've been developing, we've developed partnerships with universities, yeah. not only in London, but in Canada, West Indies, and in discussions with universities here in Atlanta to create that global network to discuss topics like civil rights, for example, mm -hmm. from the perspective of you know, a Canadian or a British person or someone in the West Indies or in Africa and be able to really see the similarities between their experiences and differences and just be able to connect. Yeah. You all in Atlanta, mm -hmm. you know real estate is prime. Yes. yes. <laughs> I imagine an $84 million Museum of Diversity requires some land. Yes, mm -hmm. ma'am. Are you, you know, do you feel comfortable? Are you eyeballing the land? Are you, you're not looking at our space, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's looking no, good, we're, actually. We're looking at, we're looking at, we've been looking around. Um, uh, and yes, land is a, is a major aspect of the discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you might have seen the design of our museum. Um, it's adaptable. Um, our, our architect, um, Spark, um, considered this in the, in the making of the, the, the museum itself, where it can be adaptable to any given space. Mm. And, and so, you know, we might have several MOD within <laughs> Atlanta in itself. I remember in covering from the announcement that Atlanta was going to have a Center for Civil and Human Rights. Yeah. I remember talking to the first executive director and, and Doug Shipman, and this was a, an idea that had come out of the uh, late uh, um, the Laurie uh, family. And so it took. It takes time. Yes, and it takes money, mm -hmm. and it, it takes commitment. Yeah, it takes the the will of a board. Yes. You all are, are you have yeah. that together? You yes. Yeah. So so I mean, if I just jump on that, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we recognize, and when you look at the data for other museums, the National Museum of American History, it took them a decade itself, mm -hmm. uh, and of course, millions millions of dollars to to build. Uh, and what we recognize the imp the importance of uh, the need for such a museum or MOD is that we must ensure that the foundation, the structures are ground. So that's what we have spent mm -hmm. a lot of time on. Uh, we've built a solid board, uh, both here in the UK, um, in the US and, and in the UK. And we've got good partners around us, the, you know, talking to the Woodruff Museum and just learning from other museums. So. And I hear that, especially now, mm -hmm. you know, in this day and age where technology is so important mm -hmm. and people want an interactive active experience yeah. i'm a little old school i still like to go and read yes. a book <laughs> sit down and you know yes turn the pages but i understand that technology is so crucial in this yeah. are you aligning yourselves and you have a background in that yeah. obviously but are you also looking at how just a much of an interactive experience this needs to be for people yeah. they come to the museum yeah I mean, it, like you said, technology is the, f the future and it's integrated into everything that we do. So it's important that education and museums and arts institutes keep up with that movement. Our hope um, or our um, focus is going to be when, you know, while we are 
getting the funding to build a physical museum. We're also going to be, you know, we've built this VR museum to be able to still be actively engaged mm -hmm. with the community in the meantime. And then the physical museum will be using immersive technology. So when we say museum, yes, it's going, we want it to be a museum, but at the same time, we want to redefine mm -hmm. what museums mean, especially oh, yeah. to youth yes. who are the smallest population to attend museums. So if we can make it something where instead of just reading a poster about you know, Martin Luther's uh, King's March, mm -hmm. maybe you could be immersed in it yeah. and you can have it around you and it just, there's so much amazing immersive technology out there now and we just want to be able to uh, do the storytelling in a, in a new way. Yeah. And the data, I was just going to add to yeah. that, just to say the data shows in Europe that uh, people who visit virtual um, experiences always want to go and experience a physical a museum as well. I love so. it too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me ask y'all this because y'all know me. I'm going to ask it. Uh, 84 million? <laughs> I know. Yes. What? what <laughs> well, how much I know you, it's intimidating. How much you got? <laughs> <laughs> Let me dig in my pocket. But no, no <laughs> go ahead. No, um, yeah, um, eight to four million. Um, yeah, sounds like a, a large number. Um, but when you actually break it down, if we had 50,000 50, people who contribute uh, from $50 to $10,000, we can generate 84 million. Mm -hmm. um, the major part of that is, a, of course, a physical structure and, mm -hmm. and the technology that be Im implanted. But thereafter, we'll be able to generate 11 million every year, um, um, quite conservatively, and, and you know, make the museum operational and sustainable over a significant period of time. So you've given yourselves, you said, a, a decade, you think, in, in 10 years? Um, no, within, within five years. We are five years? Years. Yes, yeah. So we, we have, we've been working on it since 2017. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so um, you know, we believe it, it's an it's a, um, achievable task. Um, I know the numbers sound like a lot, but honestly, Actually, it I feel Listen, like in this country, there's here money. She, here she goes. <laughs> here goes Rose Scott. We see folks every day spend a whole lot of money on a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. So right. that, yeah, no, right. Just, yeah. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I think the timing is perfect. I think there is a great hunger for. Yeah. I mean, just example when Black Panther came out. Just the re the trailer just came out yesterday, yeah. and everybody on YouTube is watching and crying and just you know, grown men crying. And I'm like, wow, that there is a hunger for something like this. Yes. Constantly we hear within the community um, people saying, oh, we need to create our own. Yeah. You know, we need to have more representation. And this is us saying, okay, let's well, let's create something of our own. Yeah. Let's get behind what you're saying. And someone listening says, okay, the Museum of D Diversity, mm -hmm. I want Troy and Cuckoo to tell me in a sentence. You know how they, they say that's that elevator speech? You know? <laughs> I don't know who came up with that, but it's like, really? <laughs> and you had to explain to someone, mm -hmm. what is this Museum of Diversity about? And you would say. Let me go first. In the words of the great Marcus Garvey, a people without <laughs> the knowledge of their past history, culture, or roots is like a tree without knowledge. And that's what I believe. This is the root of knowledge we are creating something that anyone any culture can come and learn about their history whether it be from africa whether it be within their community and you should put that on a shirt and put that in the gift shop yeah. <laughs> i don't know if you need to 
<laughs> Talk to Marcus Garvey's folks. <laughs> but, brother, you put that on a T-shirt and it's going to sell. Yeah. Right. And what would you say? I mean, he, he took the mandolin that we use, <laughs> but I'll quote someone else, a Nobel uh, Peace Prize recipient, Wangari Mathai. She says, you cannot enslave a mind that knows itself, values itself, that understands itself. So I think that is incredibly important. The more we can't know who we are or where we're going without knowing where we are from. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I want to give y'all a couple of dollars right now. <laughs> but it can yes. go on our website. <laughs> I much success for Thank this. You. When you all came up to me at the Atlanta History Center and you were so excited, I could see the passion in your eyes. Now, I don't want y'all to just start rolling up at me at the grocery store <laughs> and at Mellow Mushroom where I hang out but uh, or the Beltline. But, uh, you know, I could see the passion. Yeah. And you all said, Rose, we got something. And, you know, you came on and it, it's it's great. We're very excited. We hope you can have this, at least I hope so, you can have this mm-hmm. Museum of Diversity here in Atlanta. That would be awesome. Don't you, don't, no offense, don't go up to Cobb County or, you know, yeah. <laughs> Gwinnett, we want it here in Atlanta. Yeah. That's, That's what we want as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's the um, feedback been like so far from folks that you're reaching out to? I'm just curious as we say goodbye. Yeah. I mean, I th- the feedback has been amazing everybody is really excited hopeful at the even at the possibility of something like this happening we recently did a school program at a stem school in new york and the children were just in awe they said it was absolutely amazing Kaku and troy richards founders of mod that will be the museum of diversity thank you so much for taking time i really appreciate it best of luck stay on this with you all thank you on your journey thank you very much thank you thank you and that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Daniel Razel, LaShawn Hudson, and Janine Etter. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson, and our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, you can catch us at wabe.org slash Closer Look, and of course, weeknights at 7 p.m. as well on our podcast. So stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.